Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? For the people living in Chamoli District in the Himalayan foothills of Uttarakhand State in northern India, it started with a terrifying sound, a rumble that became a roar. From high above the valley floor, villagers watched a torrent of rocks, mud, ice and water tear away homes, bridges and a dam that was still under construction. Most importantly, the surge of debris took lives, perhaps more than 200. That was just days ago. Since then, a team of scientists have worked with breathtaking speed using satellites, radar and Twitter, of all things, to determine the cause and figure out whether there's yet more danger. What they're learning about a disaster a world away will help them understand what's happening here in Canada too, especially on the West Coast. We're just starting to acknowledge the risks and the potential for devastation to communities that are living along the coast. While there's not yet a definitive cause of the flood in India, climate change is altering what we know about the Himalayas. And around the world, a warming planet is increasing the rate at which glaciers retreat and danger grows. We begin today near the site of the disaster, the northern Indian state of Uttarakhand, normally known for its natural beauty framed by the Himalayan mountains. I'm Shantosh Kumar Rai, and I'm working as a scientist at uh, Dehradun-based... Rai studies glaciers in the region, his office just a few hours' drive from the site of the devastation. He told me people there are angry at what they see as a betrayal by government, one that left so many vulnerable to death and destruction. I'm also angry because they did not do enough groundwork and they did not bother about installing some monitoring instrument like weather station. We don't have any information so we could study all these things in advance and at least some early warning system could have been put in place. Insufficient monitoring. No early warning to allow people to get out of harm's way. Rai says his scientific institute has urged more action, but he complains it hasn't been given the resources to install monitors at every one of the hundreds of glaciers in the state. To install such instrument at uh, every glacier is not possible for us because Uttarakhand has more than 1,000 glaciers, so we cannot put uh, instrumentation in every area. However, people are now becoming more adventurous and adventurous and they are daring to build houses even at the remote locations and they want to uh, generate all the facilities there. So we have to put some regulatory uh, rules and procedures uh, for such kind of uncontrolled development, particularly in the higher reaches of Himalaya. For Rai, though, it's not just about more dams, it's more highways, more development, and as forests are cleared, the soils are becoming unstable. The delicate ecology of the Himalayas is increasingly fragile as the region warms, meaning more floods and disasters are all but inevitable.
For years, Flip Wester has been warning of the risks a warming world poses to people in the Himalayas. He works with the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development in Kathmandu, Nepal. Flip Wester, hello. Hi. You work more broadly in the Himalaya mountain range, but if you don't mind, we'll zoom in first on this deadly flood in Uttarakhand. I'm wondering what you've heard about it from where you are. Oh, we, we heard about it straight away. It was really quite amazing how quickly that news spread and actually the very horrifying video. I think I was watching that within an hour or two of the disaster happening. And what was your reaction to seeing that? <sighs> oh, just terrible. I mean, there was such a mass of debris of water flow mixed with mud with rocks and just watching that going what is this it's really quite horrifying and you know the people living there there's no way you're going to escape this this you know you're gone this is a death penalty this it was a very serious very alarming uh, event it must be devastating for you and for others who know the region so well and know this as 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 somewhere that people live not just the wild nature of it all Exactly. And I've been up there, uh, you know, in the mountains in Uttarakhand and, you know, know people who work there. And it was, in another sense, worrying because we have been predicting that these types of disasters would become more frequent due to climate change. But then to actually see it happening, I would say earlier than we would have expected. You know, we'd think 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And had your group been warning about this kind of thing? Oh, yes. For more than 20 years now, deep concerns about, you know, the global warming, what that will do to the glaciers, what that will do to the mountains. But then you say you've been warning about this for such a long time. Have the warnings been falling on deaf ears? I mean, they were building dams downstream. Yes. So there's, as in any country, as in any community, there's always competing interests. And, you know, certainly countries in the regions are energy poor. So building hydropower dams up in the mountains to some would seem to be a good proposition. And then you take risks. And I think this disaster in Uttarakhand will certainly lead to a reassessment of, is it really such a smart idea to be building what is actually green energy? So it's actually part of the solution, right, to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what makes this a complex story. But with this event, I do think it will lead to a reassessment and a much larger awareness. I think that's the important thing. The majority of the people live downstream. They might not be knowing so much about what's happening in the mountains. But this, you know, especially in, in India, but across the region, everybody saw this happen, uh, you know, on Facebook, on, on Twitter and on television. And will certainly lead to questions being asked that, you know, is it a good idea to be pursuing these kind of uh, developments uh, this high up? You make a lot of, of good points there, including the irony of the fact that they were actually building something that is green and it's, it's led to so much death and destruction. One of the questions, though, is if you are going to continue to build in these regions, is it incumbent upon government to create some kind of an early warning system for the people who live there? Yes. We've worked with the government of Nepal and the government of China on uh, one of the rivers that actually comes you know, off of Everest. And there are uh, these glacial lakes forming, you know, in, in Tibet, in the Tibetan plateau. And there, there's concerns about when those could break. So we've done modeling work on that and how much time you would have to get out of the way. And actually, you have less than an hour. And early warning systems in that case have been installed and they have worked. But still, the effect of these types of flooding events is huge damage to infrastructure 
and then of course loss of life. I'm not aware of an, this specific instance of, of if there was or was not an early warning system. Uh, but I would say even if there was, this was such a massive event. And it, it would appear that quite a large segment of a rock face high up on the mountain slipped and, and fell off. Basically, a, a size of 40 football fields of rock that fell down uh, and then hit the valley below. And then that turned into a massive debris uh, water flow. You cannot build early warning systems that can help you with that. You know this area. You've lived there for a long time. You know these people. What does it mean for their future of living below the Himalayan mountains? Is it time for them to move? And if they did, what would that represent to them in terms of their cultural life and their history? People have been living here for, you know, thousands of years, and people have been living high up in the mountains and have their indigenous knowledge, their their local knowledge, and know how to survive. And actually you know, know where weak spots are, know where rock avalanches happened, you know, three, four generations ago, they will continue to tell those stories. So it's better not to, you know, build a settlement here. So I wouldn't say they need to move out. But what I would say is the mountains are now rapidly changing due to global warming. So these repertoires of knowledge that have built up over thousands of years are less applicable to this changing situation. So it becomes a much more hazardous environment for people to live in. If they then need to move, move where to? The slums uh, downstream in the lowlands? You know, it's, it's a tough choice. Why do you think the rest of the world should be paying attention to what happens there? It is so far away from so many of us. Well, yes and no. And I think the metaphor in a way is, you know, the canary and the coal mine. The Himalayas is at the forefront of, of global warming. We're warming twice as fast uh, as the rest of the world. As I might add, Canada is also, right? And the impacts we are starting to see, you know, are so much larger than than even up to five or ten years ago was was expected. So I, I do think the world should care. And I do think the world cares because, you know, these mountains are iconic. Uh, everybody knows the Himalaya. Everybody knows where that is. Everybody knows those are the tallest mountains in the world. Uh, there's also 240 million people living in these mountains and hills of the uh, Hindukush Himalayas. And they deserve to be heard, and they deserve also to be uh, supported on these front lines of climate change. Flip Wester, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Good talking to you. Flip Wester lives in Kathmandu, Nepal, where he works on sustainable development in the Himalayas, or as he says it, the Himalayas. Now, after the flood ripped through the valley... It left many looking for answers. What exactly happened? And is more danger still on the way? Our next guest has been working with people from around the world to help try to figure that out. My name is Michelle Kopas, and I am a geographer and a glaciologist at the University of British Columbia. Kopas wants to create a sort of early warning system that could save lives, including here in Canada, in the future, starting with what is unfolding in Uttarakhand. This is all happening in virtual space because there a lot of the uh, researchers and work has been done, you know, in Europe, in India, and here on the West Coast. We've all been on our computers. People who have access to various satellite imagery, remote sensing imagery, a lot of the initial work that has been done is trying to figure out what actually happened and where. There's just been a lot of 
email, back and forth communications, inferences from videos that were posted on Twitter, from helicopters that have been flying overhead, and just trying to figure out like what was the cause, the initial source, and what are the ongoing threats um, in the valleys downstream. Why is it so um, important for you to respond so quickly? When you have these kinds of events that happened where this was a landslide and rock avalanche that turned into a flood and that has a, picked up a lot of material, dammed a lot of streams temporarily, there's a lot of changes that are happening. So there's a whole cascade of hazards that are ongoing. Um, and so, you know, we want to prevent loss of further life. But we also want to understand what happened here so that we can make changes and make recommendations to mountain communities worldwide that are experiencing these kinds of hazards. And we'll get to that broader effect in a moment, but I just wonder if you can share what exactly happened, because we know at the start this was being talked about as a burst glacial lake. Since then, we've taken a much closer look at a whole series of images from satellites and located a large landslide that happened on a glacier on a very steep slope in the upper reaches. And it was that landslide that entrained a lot of ice and water along the path and that caused the flood. So at this point, we don't think it was a, a glacial lake outburst, but a lot of the newer imagery shows that the amount of material that's sitting in the valley has actually blocked some of the tributary streams and there are temporary lakes that are forming at this time and they are likely to rupture and burst and cause secondary floods down the valley. And that, um, so that means potential further um, damage to property and, and potentially loss of life? Absolutely. So that's where we're trying to keep on top of it from the eyes in the sky and also the boots on the ground to try to figure out what the ongoing risks are. Is this an area that you've been monitoring? No, unfortunately not. We have been looking at the, the region as a whole, but not in particular this valley. And the unfortunate part of this is, had a much closer analysis been conducted of this region before the building of the two hydro dams, we might have been able to at least get a sense of the potential for landslides to happen. I mean, these are very steep slopes. There's a lot of loose material and there are glaciers that are shrinking. What do you know so far about the role of climate change in this disaster? Yeah, so that's an ongoing question at the moment. There was snowfall in the week before. A lot of the snow in that valley melted out the day before the landslide occurred. So we're we're looking at what the if there's any causal connection or attribution between snow melt providing water that could have helped to lubricate the landslide, for instance. And we also know that the risk of these types of slides increases as there is more glacier retreat happening in the upper valleys, but also thawing of the permafrost. But much as we see with other kind of cascading impacts of climate change, you know, you can think about all the wildfires that have happened over the last few years. Any one wildfire might be difficult to make that complete connection to what's happening in terms of climate in that region. But when we look at 
the magnitude of these events and the frequency at which they're happening, then we can start to draw these connections. And we're starting to see that there's more and more of these landslides are happening. And I was going to ask you about that. You track other areas around the world as well. Why, why is that important? Climate change isn't just air temperature, it then causes a whole cascade of effects like the melting of ice, the shrinking of ice, the loosening of materials on the on the mountaintops. The areas that you're studying, they're not all far away. In fact, one of these places is not far from Vancouver. What can you tell us about that? There have been a number of slides, sorry, landslides that we have been tracking that are happening in the BC Coast Mountains. And one of them's in Butte Inlet, which is not so far from where I live. We're seeing more frequent landslides happening, more frequent hazards, and they're getting larger. And sometimes when they end in a body of water, they can actually cause a tsunami that can travel hundreds of kilometers away. What's happening in coast BC is also happening in coastal Alaska. And for instance, looking at remote sensing, we've actually seen that there's lots of slopes that are have potential for large failure. And so one of these is Barry Arm in Alaska, but there's a number of them that we're noticing now that we are starting to look in more detail along the coast of Alaska and BC. And due to both the unraveling of the mountains, but then also how that unraveling can get translated through tsunamis, for instance, we're just starting to acknowledge the risks and the potential for devastation to communities that are living along the coast. And I don't want to scare people or be sensationalist, but are there people potentially living in harm's way? I don't want to be sensationalist or scare people either, but yes, that is true. The people that are living along the coast are dealing with a number of different hazards. And so what we are trying to do at the moment is to try to figure out with these communities what the adaptation measures could be. So understanding that there is a risk is the first step. And then trying to understand what monitoring is needed for these hazards and what adaptation measures should we be thinking about putting in place to minimize the risk to these communities. In 2016 in Tibet, scientists sent out a warning after one glacier collapsed and averting deaths before the other one collapsed. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about? That's a great example of a system where there was an understanding that when there is one failure, it can lead to a cascading series of failures. Where a landslide, for instance, has been observed and we see what shifts it has made to the landscape, then we can actually set up a warning system for the inevitable cascade of failures that will happen subsequently. And that is what we're trying to do in Uttarakhand at the moment. Has the way that the international community of scientists responded to what's happened in Uttarakhand sort of changed the game for for the way you can tackle these kinds of incidents worldwide? You seem like you formed a kind of a cyber um, detective team in a way. Absolutely. And that has been a real game changer. This has been the first time that there has been a international in real time communications hub. And the other game changer here is Twitter and social media and being able to use the platform and all the videos and the tweets that have been posted by this event by people on the ground, helping use that video to be able to understand the dynamics that are happening. Hopefully moving forward, this is going to bring more of these types of 
international real-time collaborations to help these communities in need as it happens. Michelle Copas, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Michelle Copas is a glaciologist and a professor at the University of British Columbia. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. We know climate change is increasing the number of wildfires, floods, and landslides, making them even more destructive, and forcing many of us to reckon with our own responsibility to respond. Our next guest grapples with questions like that. Brooke Ackerley is a professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. Hello. Hello. You've been following the news about the flood and the rescue and recovery of workers underway in Uttarakhand. What's your reaction been to what you've been seeing and hearing? Well, I think like everybody, it's distressing. Um, But I think the most distressing thing for me were the reports of people who live in the area who understand this as a potential risk of living where they live. Tell me more about that. When we hear about a disaster like that, it sounds unique and a surprise, and it is to us. But the people who live there knew of the risks and had been warning politicians, asking for help, trying to develop plans, and weren't getting the political support they needed to be prepared for such a disaster. Uh, From what I've seen in the last several days, there hasn't been a huge amount of coverage of this. Some people don't really seem to pay much attention to disasters like this that happen so far away. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Should people be paying more attention? Normally, it is only these crises that get attention. Something horrible has to happen. We don't cover the risks as much as we cover the failure to prepare for a risk or the recovery efforts after a disaster like this. It's one thing to respond to a quote-unquote natural disaster. But if the root cause can be linked to climate change, should we be responding differently? I would say with natural disaster in general, there is always the natural part and there's always the social part. How disastrous a particular environmental or climatic event is for a population has a lot to do with what kind of governance structures, preparedness and response structures we have available. Because of the nature of climate change, the normal ways we think about responsibility don't really apply. We should set aside the normal ways we think about responsibility and think less about what am I individually responsible for and more about what can I do and how can we respond so that the world that we're leaving for our children and grandchildren and the families who were affected this week 
is a better place. So I think climate change asks us to shift our thinking about responsibility to be less about backward-looking responsibility and more about looking forward to the kind of world we want to create and what we need to do together to create it. So then does that let people off the hook in other parts of the world in trying to do anything about what has happened in India right now? So when you think about a crisis, and we've got decent data to show this, people generally like to respond to a crisis. So if we want to respond individually, say, for example, by sending money, the question is not whether to do so, but how to do so. If I'm concerned about this problem long term, then I want to direct my philanthropy in a way that enables those people who live in those communities to, in the process of leading their own disaster and recovery, to have more political power at the end of it. But the other way to think about responsibility at these moments is not just responsibility for this particular crisis, but also to think about the fact that this is climate-related and then to think about, well, what does taking responsibility for climate change look like? Even if I don't anticipate that where I live, the impacts are going to be ones that particularly displace my home or my livelihood, still am I not responsible in one of these more collective ways for addressing climate change. Do you think that people in our part of the world are ready to take that on? I think people are ready. I perceive a lot of willingness, but I also perceive that people are having trouble making the links between their individual action and the larger collective impact they want to see. However, there is no other way but to have an impact through our individual action as consumers and social actors, and then also as political actors. And in our cases, democracy, it should affect how we vote. So even when we understand the problem of responsibility as being a collective responsibility, I think you're already asking the right question if you're asking yourself, how can I take responsibility for this? What does it mean for me to do? And I think there are concrete things that an individual can do, such as listen to this radio show or podcast and learn about what's happening in other parts of the world so that you do feel more connected. Talk with people about climate change. And finally, when you think about what your actions look like, if you approach it as sort of a model of self-education. So let's say I decide my way of impacting the environment is I'm going to be a five-day-a-week vegetarian. Not only do you learn about being a vegetarian, but you also learn how much of your world is organized for you not to be. And so it helps you see just how politically, socially, economically constructed a lot of our choices are. And we don't actually have as much choice as we think we do. So that helps you see why this has to be understood as a political problem, because individuals alone can't change those broader patterns. We, we have to change them together. Dr. Ackerley, it's been a thought-provoking conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Brooke Ackerley is a professor at Vanderbilt University, where her work focuses on climate change, global justice, and human rights. With climate change, our individual actions are part of a bigger picture. 
What then is at stake if individuals and political leaders fail to learn from what's happening right now in Uttarakhand? Argo Banerjee has been thinking about that. He's an assistant professor at the Indian Institute of Science Education and Research in Pune, India. He studies glaciers mostly in the Himalayas. So this is, of course, we are looking at an extreme situation. This is Himalaya and the it's a young mountain which is rising very fast and it's a difficult uh, region already because of various other reasons. But in general, this kind of climate change and related issues, that connects all of us, right? Because in some way or other, we are all getting affected. I am from eastern part of the India. There, for example, we are getting hit by cyclones more often and they are stronger than uh, before. There are many uh, ways climate change is hitting us and Maybe that's a good thing about it. Although the problem hits us in different uh, colors, but then when we are looking at it, it is making us think in in a similar way. I mean, in many ways, this thing is connecting all of us and we need to work together and uh, solve this issue. And we know what to do, roughly. I mean, there are uh, simple models which tells us what is going to happen and the future is not looking very bright if we fail to react to this kind of what you already know. The predictions are there on all possible scenarios. I mean, the predictions that scientists are making are not going to be exactly right. There is a lot of uncertainty. But still, even within that uncertainty, we know how bad things can go if we don't act. That part is probably clear to us all. Argo Banerjee is a glaciologist based in Pune, India. That does it for us and our podcast this week. And if you haven't given us a review yet, please do and tell a friend because it helps move the climate conversation forward. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, our intern Serena Renner, associate producers Jennifer Van Evra and Rachel Sanders, producer Lisa Johnson, sound engineer Matthias Wolfson. This week, Molly Siegel is our senior producer and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.